North Korea is the impossible state. It's a place that stumped leaders and policymakers for more than three decades. It has a complex history, and it has become the United States' top national security priority. Each week on this show, we'll talk with the people who know the most about North Korea. Today on The Impossible State, Victor Cha and I are joined by Christian Davies, who is the sole correspondent for the Financial Times. Christian, thanks for being with us today. Thank you for having me. So I want to get right to it, guys. There was a huge summit in Asia, Korea, and in Japan. President Biden's now back home. What was the objectives for this summit, and was it successful or not? Uh, Christian, why don't we start with you? Well, the last presidential visit that I reported on was Donald Trump's visit to Warsaw in 2017, which was a very interesting bar to which to compare this. I think if you could sum up the summit's priorities or Joe Biden's priorities in one sentence, it would be that traditionally US presidents would visit the demilitarized zone between the two Koreas on the Korean Peninsula, whereas this time he went to a Samsung semiconductor factory. Right. So it really it says something about the priorities, doesn't it, Victor? Yeah, I think it does. I mean, it was, uh, as Christian said, you know, the general template for a summit like this is it, it's always about the alliance and about security. And that certainly figured in, in the summit. But uh, the, the other big theme of this was economic security and supply chains. And so literally, the minute he got off the plane, he went to Pyeongtaek to this Samsung, fact, uh, Samsung factory which is a model uh, of the factory that's going to be built in Texas um, that Samsung had committed to in the last summit meeting with the previous previous administration. So um, definitely a different flavor uh, flavor to this summit. But I would also add that I think that you know the success of summits are are, are really dependent on what what happened before the summit in terms of you know previous uh, agreements between the U.S. and the ROK and the direction, the sort of homework they laid out for themselves going forward. And so I think in that sense, you know, we did see a shift. I mean, from May 2021, the last summit meeting to to this one, you know, South Korea now is interested in the quad. It is signed on to IPEF, regardless of what you think of IPEF, they've signed on to IPEF. IPEF being the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework. Right. The Indo-Pacific Economic Framework. You know, they're much more interested in pivoting to a regional and global role. And so these are things, this is very different. This is a very different direction for Korea and the alliance than it was literally a year ago, right? So literally a year ago, a, a different direction. So, so that part is also interesting to me. Christian, if I were the semiconductor industry, I'd probably get bumper stickers made up that said, semiconductors are security. Because this is a... right i mean this was who who would have thought president's first stop would be a semiconductor factory yes but i think what this shows us 
is we are in a moment where Korea's traditional uh, mercantilist impulses and America's strategic priorities are very neatly aligned. And so in this sense, there, there isn't a tension. I would draw a contrast with not very long ago when Russia invaded Ukraine. I don't think it's quite understood so much publicly just how reluctant Korea was under the previous Moon administration to take any action even whatsoever in response to uh, you, uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine and just how unhappy America was uh, at that. And behind the scenes, there was quite a bit of tension and toing and froing. And I think the real question is uh, going forward, what happens when Korea's commercial imperative and America's economic security imperative doesn't align so neatly because that will really be the test of the alliance. Is that possible, Victor? I mean, do you think that that, I mean, we're so closely aligned with them in so many ways now. Yeah, I think one place it is possible is on Ukraine, right? Because as Christian said, under the previous government, you know, the optics were to try to uh, maintain some sort of unity and Korea eventually did sign on to some of the sanctions against Russia, but they were very reluctant to do it because they were worried about commercial blowback. You know, the UN government has talked about supporting democracy and the liberal international order. As I said, the NATO summit is next week. They lobbied to get invited, so they've been invited. And are they going to make a big play on Ukraine? Like, are they going to, you know, contribute, you know, lethal combat equipment uh, on Ukraine, which would probably, you know, upset the Russians more than they're already upset with South Korea and could lead to some commercial blowback. So that I think would be one test. The other would be on uh, on uh, missile defense, where, you know, the, the UN government has talked about for national security reasons, you know, building this capability and the Chinese are not going to like it. And they may sort of, again, pull what they pulled in 2017, which is all this economic coercion against um, against the um, you know, but actually, that would be a test for the United States, actually, more than it would be a test for Korea, because in 2017, under Trump, like Trump wouldn't even take, he wouldn't even take the briefing on Chinese economic coercion on North Korea, let alone actually saying something to the Chinese about it. And then in, in the U.S. case, this time in 2022, if China did coerce, would the United States stand by Korea's side? So when you talk about missile defense, you, you're talking about something in South Korea like Israel's Iron Dome and like what the Ukrainians want now. Yeah, the UN government has said that they want to do an early, they're, they're planning on Iron Dome, but they want to do an early deployment of Iron Dome four years earlier than normal. In addition to that, UN has talked about, I don't know if he's done it lately, but he has, Christian would know, he has talked about a, a Korean-owned THAAD battery, a second THAAD battery uh, that was Korean owned in Seoul. So, uh, you know, and particularly the sec, you know, the latter one is neurologic for the Chinese, given what we saw in 2017, because they're worried about the radars and, and it potentially being directed against the Chinese missile threat. Although at the rate that the Chinese are building missiles and plans to build nuclear weapons, it's a non-factor. But I, I would caution very strongly against a, a narrative that we're seeing a great transformation of South Korea's approach to a lot of these issues from the moon to the UN administration. Of course, Victor's not characterizing it this way, but uh, you sometimes get the impression that people think Moon was somehow a non-aligned pacifist, whereas Yoon is just going all in on, on defense in the US. I mean, the fact is, we talked about these great investments that Samsung and Hyundai are making in America. This obviously predates 
the election of President Yoon, uh, who was only president for 10 days when the, when the summit started. This is a process of Korea realigning its supply chains over a longer period of time, and in many ways because of commercial incentives. First of all, China, not just the way that uh, it had the economic blockade against uh, South Korea in response to THAAD, but of course the regulatory crackdown uh, in many other spheres of the economy in China, which has really spooked a lot of companies with, uh, um, with investments in China. Uh, and secondly, America is giving very strong and very attractive inducements for these uh, these kinds of investments. So this is not this is not really a political decision, even if it can be dressed up that way um, at a summit between the two countries. And on defense, of course, President Moon, although he had a very different approach maybe to North Korea, what the uh, the continuity in Korean policy is an investment in defense, in deterrence, uh, and in uh, uh, in the capabilities. There may be a distinction and a difference of priorities in terms of how Korea's capabilities, uh, or rather, which policy those capabilities will be used to pursue. But there is a bipartisan agreement on the need to invest in defense and so on. So this is not, uh, I don't think, South Korea suddenly deciding to take defense or deterrence seriously, whereas it didn't a month ago. This is, in many ways, I think we understate sometimes the significance of the Moon-Biden summit from last year, and maybe we might be overstating the significance of this summit that we had this week. Well, Victor, how do you think we're possibly overstating this summit? A lot of it depends on the follow-through, right? I mean, you know, it's, it's summits are about statements, big statements, but is there real, real follow-through? One of the criticisms of the previous, you know, summits between the U.S. and South Korea was that there were all these great statements, but there wasn't that much follow through. And so, um, you know, whether, whether it's on extended deterrence or on supply chains or on IPEF or on the, on the quad, a lot of it will depend, uh, will depend on the follow through. Uh, you know, the one thing I would say about uh, on the issue of defense, when we compare the moon and the UN governments, I think I, I agree with Christian that South Korean governments, of course, are interested, given the security situation with China and with North Korea and the ramifications of the war in Europe, that they're, they're very focused on boosting and improving national defense. I would say one of the diff- key differences, though, is that under progressive governments, you know, under progressive governments historically, whether it was no, no Mujan or, or Moon, they increased defense spending. Defense spending was very high under progressive governments. But the direction of that defense spending was towards more autonomous capabilities, right? Whereas I think what we'll see under this conservative government will be a focus on building capabilities that are interoperable with the alliance. And we even see it like on what they said about OPCON transition, right, Christian? On OPCON transition, they said they're going back to sort of the original plan, which was a conditions-based uh, transition of operate wartime operational control. So, so I think there, there are differences in the way that they implement things like defense spending. And on supply chain, yeah, I totally agree with Christian. Like, you know, in government, in business, you know, no decision happens for only one reason. It happens for a confluence of reasons. And in this case, you know, the, the, the movement of supply chains, particularly in the you know, critical technology and critical materials area, you know, the Koreans have made a decision very clearly that they're going to move this stuff out out of China. And the United States sees an opportunity with that. And so we provide inducements. 
for them to do that, uh, as do, you know, local governors and state governors and, and, and senators and others, right? They provide inducements for these, these companies to go to Georgia and to go to, was Georgia and Alabama sort of two of the favorites, right? Well, meanwhile, the supply chain situation can't get resolved soon enough because you, if you wanted in Washington, D.C. right now, in the district of Maryland and Virginia, if you wanted to buy a Kia or a Hyundai, you got to get on a waiting list. And I know this from personal experience because my wife took my my son yesterday. It is like darn near impossible. Well, you mean you're not gonna you're not gonna buy him an Audi like your Audi, Andrew? <laughs> He's not ready. <laughs> he can't handle that yet, Victor. He's not ready. <laughs> but one of these days, hopefully, he'll buy himself one. <laughs> but it but it's it's really serious. I mean, and it all comes down to semiconductors, doesn't it? So South Korea really does have some leverage. Yes, they both have an interesting uh, and complex series of leverage over uh, over each other. But uh, we cannot still understate the extent to which China is by far South Korea's largest trade partner, and the extent to which you know we're not just talking uh, a bilateral U.S. South Korean supply chain. A lot of the things that South Korea is going to be producing for America will itself have a supply chain that leads to China. And there's no prospect of that being diversified to the extent that uh, China will not be able to exert a great deal of influence over these processes. What I would say, though, what is very interesting is, I think, because we're, we're looking at a, a summit, which is the first, you know, first, literally the first few weeks of a new Korean presidency. But if we look at the, at the old one, I mean, I think we may look back at the previous presidency as the presidency over which China lost South Korea. Not in the sense that South Korea was ever going to be a close Chinese ally, but I think China has lost South Korean neutrality as a strategic uh, strategic goal. It's interesting that they've actually been very active in trying to warn South Korea about going too far uh, with the US. You know, They sent a, a vice president to the inauguration of President Yoon, and they've been issuing warnings in their usually cuddly way. But um, I, I think this is... It's not just a question of the government being elected. It's there's been a big shift in Korean public opinion across the generations. Older generations have the memory or their parents' memory of the Korean War. So for obvious reasons, there's more of a kind of Cold War type outlook. But interestingly, the younger Koreans, younger South Koreans are very driven by questions of principle, questions of identity. And many of them identify with the young Hong Kongers who were crushed in Hong Kong and with uh, the cause of Taiwan. And you put this all together with China's approach to South Korea, and you have a very big push factor, as well as a very big pull factor from the US. But China's still an economic and geopolitical reality. So we we cannot forget about, about that and simply hope that these new supply chains will create a new, you know, create a new dynamic there because. There's a shift of emphasis, but it's not a shift of of the big picture yet. I agree with that. My sense is that what the Yun government is trying, they, I think, you know, obviously, I think they totally understand that and they have no illusions about it. But my sense is that their approach to China will be, it'll be very firmly grounded in as strong an alliance that they can pursue with the United States, as well as as strong a trilateral relationship they can pursue with Japan, because I think they feel like, you know, if they have that, they have a much better chance of to, uh, not standing up to China, but mu- much better sense, chance of being on equal footing with China, right? The Yun 
camp's slogan with regard to China was that they wanted to normalize relations with China, which, you know, which suggests that it wasn't normal prior and that it was very much that China was basically treating Korea like a province. And, and so I think, you know, their strategy, cognizant of all of the economic realities, their strategy, I think, really is to, to show a strong relationship with the democratic alliances in their dealing with China, um, so that they're not dealing with China with China alone, right? And I think that's the Biden administration strategy also with regard to all the coalition diplomacy in the region. But Christian's right, the economic realities are the realities. Well, let's talk about IPEF. So the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework was announced in Japan on May 23rd. What do you guys make of it? My colleague at the Financial Times, Dmitry Sevastopoulou, uh, did a very interesting long uh, article and uh, the, the tone of that text is that the great risk for the United States is that they, uh, their strategy is being led by their military concerns and their military and security focus. And they are risking seeding the narrative about economic cooperation to China by not offering enough on the economic front. It would really not be in America's interest to be seen rightly or wrongly as the ones building military coalitions while the while China offers economic opportunities. Victor. You know, the first effort by the administration to engage on regional on, on trade. So that, you know, that's a good thing. Uh, they got 13 countries to sign up to it. That's a good thing. But there we still don't know what it really is, right? It's a statement of principles, as Christian said. Uh, they've been pretty definitive about about it not including market access, which you know reduces incentives for a lot of countries as to like why why are they doing this. You know the Japanese um, were pretty clear that they they'll sign on, but they still want the U.S. to come back to CPTPP, right? So it's 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 almost sort of like saying yes, we'll do this, but it's not a real trade agreement. And then on top of all that, like the, you know the president. He stepped on his own rollout with the comments that he made about Taiwan, right? Because, uh, you know, no one talked about IPEF after that. Everybody talked about whether we had a change in policy on Taiwan. So, you know, so I think, you know, it, it, in, it was a good effort. Like, so I give him an A for effort. It was a good effort. The rollout kind of got messed up and the substance, we're really still not sure what it's all, what it's all about. Even though he didn't really signal any change in Taiwan policy. No, but but I don't know how the FT covered it, but I talked to a lot of media and they, you know, they tried to say the, these three times that Biden has made mention of Taiwan, he said this. But, you know, we all know it's it's not a change in policy. Besides, I don't know when our podcast is coming out, but, you know, Blinken's going to going to give a speech, going to give the finally give the big China speech. That was postponed because he got COVID. Yeah. You know, he was he was at our he was the reason he couldn't go to Korea Right, as part of the summit was he was doing the commencement address at Georgetown. And uh, he was, you know, he was saying that this China speech has been postponed like several times. Like it's just got the worst, uh, you know, it's got the worst luck in terms of rolling it out. So but my point is, I'm sure that when he gives that speech, they're not going to announce a new change on Taiwan. Right. There's not there's no new change on policy towards Taiwan. So why did the media make it into something so big just because of the context with uh, Ukraine? Yeah, I mean, possibly, I mean, you know, it's, you know, it was a gotcha moment for Biden. And it, I think it reflects his true sentiments, right? So, so if the Chinese ever did do something, you know, the question to the U.S. would be, are we or are we not going to 
according to the TRA, the Taiwan Relations Act, are we not going to help to defend Taiwan? So, the, you know, it's very clear from his sentiment for Biden, that's not a question. The answer is yes. And it's how the question then would be, how do we do that? Like, is it through troops? Is it through the Navy? Is it through arms or? And not to mention that Biden was the only, is the only politician that was actually around when our Taiwan policy was originally crafted. I understand that once George Bush is president, George W. Bush is president, said something similar. And he was admonished in a Washington Post editorial by a senator called Joe Biden. <laughs> Words matter, Mr. President, something something along those lines. Christian, to take it a step farther, the reason George W. Bush said that is because Mike Green and Victor Cha told him to say it. So that's 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 what happened. <laughs> no, we did not. We did not tell President Bush to call Taiwan an ally. Right. Because he did. That was a he, he called Taiwan an ally. And <laughs> but yeah, yeah. But I, what I think to to uh, bring it back to Korea, I mean, something that's certainly happening here is the Koreans have re, uh, seemed very, very skittish for uh, a, a few reasons over North Korea. And first of all, Kim Jong-un and his sister Kim Yo-jung in the last few months have started to say things that suggest, imply maybe a change in uh, North Korea's nuclear policy in which uh, nuclear coercion is becoming a, an increasing part. I mean, Kim Jong-un gave a speech where he talked about his nuclear arsenals uh, having a primary mission and a secondary mission, the primary mission being to defend the country or, or to keep it safe. The second one was not specified, but it was a, a vague reference to uh, defending, I think, the core interests or the fundamental interests of the country. And secondly, of course, what has Russia demonstrated with Ukraine? They've demonstrated that the threat of nuclear use potentially can keep the U.S. out. Um, that you know that nuclear threat, nuclear use can deter the U.S. And of course, for obvious reasons, this makes South Korea very nervous. And uh, that's why we've seen, I think, this greater emphasis on deterrence in the most recent summit. But I'm not convinced that the South Koreans have received the assurance that they want. That may simply because we're just so early in the Yoon presidency, it's so, it's so early. And this is why it's very hard to judge. You know, there was a lot of talk that it was, it was really great that this, that this summit was so early because they got to know each other soon and good atmosphere and so on. But bureaucracies need time, first of all, to absorb the priorities of their leaders. And secondly, to actually be able to work with each other to develop concrete proposals that leaders can then can then decide upon. So I think, as Victor suggested earlier, what really matters is the second summit. <laughs> and when will that be? You know, will that be in one year? Will that be in two years? Will that be in three years? That is what will really determine whether South Korea gets the kind of assurances in the next few years that it requires. Victor, will Blinken give any indication as to when the next summit is in this upcoming speech? Probably not. I, I, you know, I don't, I don't think so. I mean, um, you know, there are a couple of opportunities for the next meeting. You know, one would be towards the end of July when they, you know, unveil the new Korean War, you know, refurbished Korean War Memorial. The other would be UNGA in September. I, I assume that Yun would be coming to that in, in September. But, but on Christian's point about nuclear coercion and, you know, potentially a North Korean first use doctrine, which they would have taken away from the Putin's threats to NATO to deter NATO from getting involved in Ukraine. I sense that as well. I mean, the, the obvious implication from Ukraine 
for North Korea is they feel justified in having their weapons. But then the second is this notion that they could actually deter uh, others from intervening through the threat of nuclear of nuclear first use. So that does make the deterrence, extended deterrence discussion much more important. Um, there was a survey that was done by the Chicago Council that suggested South Koreans were much more in favor of nuclear weapons. Um, CSIS, we're going to do our own work on this, uh, looking at the, um, uh, the question of how the publics in Korea and Japan look at extended deterrence guarantees. But here again, the follow through is important. My sense is the Biden administration uh, is not simply you know, making positive statements at the summit and saying that's it. I think they're going to sort of dig down and look at this much more closely. Some of it may not be public because It'll be about expanding the scope of exercising, uh, which they may not talk about publicly. Um, and there may be other things that they don't do publicly that, to try to increase deterrence, the increase the credibility of deterrence. You know, the, the issue always from a policy perspective with regard to the credibility of extended deterrence is, you know, trying to draw the walk the fine line between ambiguity, right, strategic ambiguity versus being much more explicit about the things that you are doing, which could provoke or inflame a situation, right? And so it's finding that that balance between the two things. But I would say, I think my sense is the, um, the administration is, is very focused on this with both Korea and Japan, uh, and that they're gonna do a number of things going, going forward. I think also we need to stress, well, from my perspective, it seems that uh, this emphasis on deterrence is partly to fill the void of the fact that we seem to run out of ideas or options about anything, any other way of approaching the North Korea question. I mean, not only do we have North Korea's nuclear arsenal growing in scale and sophistication, hasn't been held back too much by sanctions, hasn't been held too much even by the coronavirus pandemic and the extreme isolation. The uh, international pressure on North Korea looks like it's only going one way, namely it's going to be released because it doesn't seem that China and Russia is going to be as committed uh, as it was in the past. And engagement is clearly not going anywhere. And so that only leaves deterrence as a, as a default. And I think this was really uh, summed up when Joe Biden was asked, you know, do you have anything to say to Kim Jong-un? And he said, hello, period. You know, and that um, that's where we've been, uh, been left. And I think even if North Korea watchers get bored to tears talking about the same old issues over and over again, the same old problems. Um, we cannot ever lose sight of the fact that this problem is not only standing still, it's just getting worse. And deterrence is not a resolution. Uh, if anything, it can accelerate the problem or exacerbate the problem. You can talk about deterrence all you like, but it's not even approaching a, a solution. I'm not saying finding a solution is easy. I'm not someone who castigates uh, officials for not coming up with some brilliant way of coaxing Kim Jong-un out of his position, but we, we cannot escape the fact that this problem is getting worse. Yeah, and the only, the only near-term negotiating objective is one that will be roundly criticized in the sense that you know, the obvious objective, if we were to get back into a negotiation, would be to reestablish a freeze on the on the testing, whether it's missile testing and nuclear testing, to reestablish that freeze. But you can imagine that would just be roundly criticized as a policy because you'd have to give something for that. And you would be accused of buying the same horse for the fifth or sixth time. And critics would say, well, North Korea is only willing to freeze right now because they've accomplished everything they wanted to accomplish. So 
you know, this is why North Korea is famously the land of lousy options, because, you know, the current situation requires us to try to find a way to stop them from developing in that. And, you know, absent, you know, complete Chinese and Russian support in not allowing them to make these purchases on the open market, which is, you know, highly unlikely now. It's to try to get a freeze on these things. But the minute that freeze is agreed to, it will be roundly criticized by everybody, right, as as an ineffective um, set of U.S. diplomatic accomplishments. As a reporter, it's really striking that 2017, North Korea launches an ICBM, and it's the basically the biggest story in the world. And five years later, they launch an ICBM again, and it barely registers. I mean, it's not on any front pages. Don't know if it's on any even middle pages. But the threat is no different. If anything, it's worse because it's not just the missiles. It's all the delivery systems and all these other components, uh, you know, which are growing in sophistication and number and so on. So it's worse than before. But because something has happened once before, the, the psychological fear, you know, the psychological effect has dissipated. But that's that's just as dangerous when... You, you're not scared anymore because you should be. So, you know, given the background of all this, doesn't it make the recent missile test even scarier? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's the, as, as Christian said, we've kind of become jaded by all of these demonstrations by North Korea. But with each one, they're, you know, they're learning curve. With each one, they're improving their capability. You know, as we people always used to say in the intelligence community, even when they fail in their tests, they're learning something, Right. And their tolerance for failure is much higher now, right? Because they're testing at a much more rapid tempo. And so their tolerance for failure is higher now, which means they're getting closer to what they want to do. They know they're getting closer to what they're trying to achieve, whether it's hypersonics, whether it's countermeasures, whether it's, you know, multiple warheads on on a single bus. They're getting better and better at what they're doing. And, um, you know, the most recent demonstrations they tested reportedly both short-range and long-range uh, uh, ballistic missiles at the same time, which pose problems for missile defense. So they're, you know, they're, they're getting better and better at this. We're becoming more and more jaded by it, such that like, people are like Yon, another North Korean uh, missile test. We don't uh, report individual missiles because they, they are not a story individually, but you put the trend together and the story is developing. So I, I, I put it that way. That's right. Well, gentlemen, I guess the final thing is, is what is the reaction of China to all of this? We've sort of talked around it on all these issues, but, you know, post-summit, what are the Chinese thinking? I would say that the Chinese have watched not just what the Biden administration did in, in the summit, but what they've watched the Biden administration do over the past couple of weeks, which is you know, we had all of the ASEAN leaders come to the White House, right, for the ASEAN summit. Then Biden goes to Korea, meets the new South Korean leader, right? Then he goes to Japan, meets the, the Japanese prime minister, announces IPEF, then does a quad meeting. Uh, and then, uh, you know, Blinken will give, the, will give the China speech. And so I think that's a message to China that the United States is not completely distracted, that we can't, that we can sort of walk and chew gum at the same time. Uh, And that's a pretty impressive set of events with regard to U.S. initiatives in Asia. Now, there are all the usual caveats, follow through, everything else. Uh, But I think it's a a pretty good demonstration that the United States has an active agenda in Asia. And they're very systematic about 
systematic about pursuing it. In every case, it's been sort of the uh, a set of meetings and a set of agreements that that precede you know the interaction with China. And again, that is, I think that's a smart way, uh, smart way to pursue pursue things. I think from the Korean perspective, the real demonstration of America's commitment will be to help Korea to weather any kind of economic storm that is provoked by Korea's strategic choices. I think a lot of Americans of a liberal or moderate persuasion often treat the former president as a bad fever dream, which they woke up from and are trying to pretend that it never happened. But of course, for many of America's allies, they can't unremember it. And I think this did a lot of damage you know, sometimes we, we're critical of, of President Moon, of you know, maybe his treatment of the US alliance and so on. But we've got to remember that he deployed Thad. There was a massive economic blockade. And so far as I understand, the US really did very little to support South Korea in that moment. So you know, the US is asking a lot of South Korea, actually, in terms of joining these kinds of alliances. And until Korea can be sure that it will get the backup it needs in those kinds of moments, then it will always be hesitant uh, to line up behind uh, America's priorities. You know, it, China doesn't mind, frankly, of course, that South Korea, South Korean company is building a semiconductor factory in, in Texas or that Hyundai is built. China, China's not gonna try and stop South Korea from doing that. It's when it, things start to really touch on China's interests, you know, will America, support Korea in that moment. And if they do, then I think you would see more movement, more enthusiasm than you're seeing right now, even under President Yoon. Yeah, the only thing I would add to that, and I agree with that. And you know, when I've talked to people in the Yoon camp who work on China, that's sort of the number one thing that they say. And the the thing that I've told them and that I would say here is that that 2017 is not 2022, like in, in the sense that the world in general is much more cognizant uh, of what China has done with regard to economic pressure. Uh, we've had, you know, living, breathing cases in Australia of countries that have stood up to China and have used good and clever trade diversion strategies to try to weather weather the storm. We've held a number of events with Australians and Koreans to talk about what Australia has done to deal with you know, China's economic coercion. In 2017, like we were just not that prepared for it. Uh, I think the Moon government was completely unprepared for it when they made the decision to uh, review the Pakane decision to put the THAAD battery there for an environmental study or things of that nature. You know, I think they didn't realize that, that China saw that as an opening, right, to try to really put pressure on South Korea. So, so I agree, though, but the proof is in the pudding, right? We can, you know, the U.S. can talk all at once about how we'll stand it with South Korea, but when China does put that pressure on, uh, the U.S. and other, you know, other like-minded countries have to be there. Right? They have to be there to help. I just want to say on on Australia, President Moon's visit to Australia at the end of last year, in which they announced a big Australian purchase of Korean howitzers, but also very uh, interesting initiatives on EV battery supply chains uh, and rare minerals and things like that. I think that was an underappreciated moment, actually. I mean, that would have been interpreted very negatively in Beijing. Uh, and yet Korea, under a progressive president, went and did that post-AUKUS, knowing the sensitivities, or I assume they knew the sensitivities. And that showed that Korea 
was already on this trajectory to uh, becoming a more active member of this uh, alliance, formally or informally, multilaterally or bilaterally. But it is a process that was already underway. And I agree with Victor that it will almost certainly be intensified. Gentlemen, great podcast. Thanks so much for your insights today. Christian, really appreciate you joining us. Uh, We'll be looking for your byline as we always do. Thanks for being with us. And we will uh, be back next week with The Impossible State. Thanks so much. Thanks, Andrew. If you have a question for one of our experts about the impossible state, email us at impossiblestate at csis.org. If you want to dive deeper into the issues surrounding North Korea, check out Beyond Parallel. That's our micro website that's dedicated to bringing a better understanding of the Korean peninsula. You can find it at beyondparallel.csis.org. And don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That's so more listeners can find us. It's very helpful. We're now also streaming on Spotify, so you can find us there too, where you find all your music. How cool is that? And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This is The Impossible State.